From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. This year, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan begins on Wednesday, March 22nd. On this week's show, you'll meet Professor Najiba Saeed, a scholar, interfaith peace and justice organizer, and speaker. We'll be talking about the significance of Ramadan and the teachings of this season that can bring hope and healing to our troubled world. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe today. State of Leaf Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest. Dr. Najiba Saeed is the inaugural El Hebri Endowed Chair and Executive Director of Interfaith at Augsburg University in Minneapolis. She has been a professor, expert practitioner, and public speaker for the last two decades in the field of conflict resolution, interfaith studies, mediation, education, deliberative democracy, and social gender and racial equity. Najiva, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Hi, how are you? And I was uh, realizing probably we've met in person. I came to your office when um, I was a fellow with the Ford Foundation and the Op-Ed Project. And I thought, well, why don't I go meet this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and now we get, yes, yes. But unfortunately, yeah. we haven't met as much in person as we need to. No, so we we will... Hopefully, we will be finding many opportunities in the future. So I, th- you have an amazing background, and you've just been doing so much desperately needed work in uh, across the country and world. Maybe we can start just a little bit about your background, where, how you grew up, and, and how you became inspired to be this um, Muslim light as well as an interfaith light uh, uh, across the country? Well, um, I think that's a really good question. Um, I was just asked, I was at a training um, for public narrative with Marshall Gans at the El Hebrew Foundation. And it's so interesting because I think part of what I do so often is um, I came into this work from doing peacemaking and peace building, being a mediator. I chose a Quaker college for that reason when I was 17 and then became a restorative justice mediator and mediated many, many cases over the years. Um, And that's kind of my private practice, but it found its way into my public persona. So I'm used to, you know, mediating between people, doing conflict resolution. And this past weekend in DC, I had to talk about myself and I realized, oh, this isn't something I do a lot. (laughs) I'm often there to, um, you know, I'm called in when there's violence in different parts of the world and have done in the US gang intervention and just so many different kinds of peacemaking. So to me, I think the through line through all of my work um, is that 
I really continue to have what one of my mentors, um, Bobby Arias, he's here in LA, he's a gang interventionist and I've worked across the country. He would tell me you have to have an irrational kind of belief in people and hope. And in many ways, that's what I talk about in my work also is, you know, when Dr. King gave his speech on the mall, he's imagining a universe that doesn't yet exist, a future that can't yet be seen, uh, a world that can't yet be felt, tasted, or heard. And so for that reason, when people tell me <laughs> you're, a, you're an optimist um, in so many situations that seem whether that seem, you know, kind of beyond hope or despair. And that's where I really feel like I've I've tried to shine through is to say, you know what? I don't accept that. <laughs> I won't accept that. And we're going to try something different and we're going to partner on an alternative vision for the future. Mm, I think that's so beautiful. You were also raised Muslim. Your father was a respected Muslim leader. Um, and I'm just curious how that fed into this work around conflict uh, mediation, and also this sense of um, belief in people. I, I like how you say irrational belief in people and, uh, you know, and kind of determined, uh, um, uh, determined to hope. I, I wonder how you're, you know, you're being raised within the Muslim faith contributed to that. Yeah, I think, I think for me, that is um, really part of this, from, you know, in, in terms of being with, growing up in the family that I have, <laughs> ensconced deeply in the creation of Muslim institutions. And my father was also, I remember I was telling the story recently when I was 19 years old, I was in college and he was invited to a national conference for Muslims and Jews. This is back in, I think, 1990, probably 1993 three or 1992, I can't remember. <laughs> and uh, he was invited to this national conference and he said, you know, Najiba, this, at this time, and he was head of a Muslim organization, he said, at this time, it isn't really, um, it isn't really, it isn't possible for our communities to be seen together because there was so much, there hadn't been the groundwork done. So he sent, instead of himself, he sent his 19 year old daughter. <laughs> wow. Thinking about that was, you know, so I go to this conference in an academic setting um, and we ended up having a really incredible experience. Many people from that conference have stayed in touch over the years because it was sort of a watershed moment of relations between our community. And what I found from that experience um, and what I gained in my building towards a skill set was that ultimately... Um, it's really not about coming to a common vision, but coming to a shared understanding. So it's it's really helped me in my own work to create a capacity to understand that I'm not going to come to a, a, a common ground on issues or a common uh, vision for how one should act in the world. And that's actually kind of beautiful. And it led me into my own journey of kind of mapping how we even do theology, that there was a time period when our different traditions um, would do what I would call competitive theology. They would get together and say, 
this son of Abraham was the right one who this happened to according to my text and this is my text is better. And, you know, we see those dialectics. We see that kind of um, debate, actually. Both people were doing it in person and they were also doing it by text with one another. We might say they were subtweeting each other in their early early scholarship, right? Subtweeting each other's text. And then we moved into um, kind of an age where I think over the last 30 years in the U.S., particularly um, since this is the context that I come from, you see groundbreaking work by folks like Frank Clooney at Harvard and others who really moved into what we call comparative theology, which is one person looking at multiple texts of a tradition and with the assumption of a theological basis is that they're a participant in one of those traditions, at least. And um, that was a new framing. And then um, for me and my work, I've really been interested in what I would call cooperative theology. And this is not um, kind of the work of of what folks were trying to achieve 100 years ago, which is a common theology for all traditions or a common religious um, ground to explain the supernatural. But instead of asking the question, which many of us ask when we come together is, what is your view of the afterlife and am I in it? That seems to be the question that drives Uh, so many of our theological uh discourse. Uh And I do think that's a particularly, you know, um, Christian question that has formed a lot of comparative theology. For me, I've been really interested in, this is the problem at hand. What is your perspective from your tradition, your practice, your uh, context? What can I learn from that? And what can we do together? So what's our shared understanding of the problem? And what is our shared capacity for solutions? So to me, the cooperative is less about the theological inquiry and more about the capacity to engage in an understanding of something that's harming. And how does religion heal? Because, you know, I feel like we have unfortunately been in so many places and it's not new that religion has been instrumentalized for hate. And I'm really in a place where I think about, well, what can we do to heal and how are we agents of that and what resources Mm. do we bring to the table? Mm. Can you give an example of the healing power of religion and how, because I, you know, I'm, you know, I, like many of us, we're very concerned about Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, you know, really worried about the way that religion has been and continues to be instrumentalized for damage. But I do think it's so important to think about the opposite way. How can religion be instrumentalized? Not in a, not in a bad way, but uh, reference drawn upon to be a healing agent. I mean, and I think, I think we can talk about it as a deliberate social engagement, but there it's also done all the time. I remember working, um, at one point having a conversation, I was brought down to the Carter Center to really address this issue because um, people who were surviving the Syrian uh, conflict, this is years ago. Um, and one of the things that fascinated the, the folks that were working on this conflict was that even though religion had been used in such, um, in such horrific ways, and then also not just inter-religious, but intra-religious um, yes. conflict as well, that even even though that had happened time and again, folks were coming through these uh, scenarios saying, we really want to draw on our belief in, in spirituality. We really want, and they were crying for interventions that engage spirituality. 
I remember working also at one time with relief workers who were being deployed to work on the post-tsunami um, post uh, disaster. And they were struck by cultures and communities where people didn't want to do talk therapy, <laughs> mm. which I advocate for in, every, in many settings here as well. I think it's really important. But people wanted to engage in spiritual in spiritual rituals and in mm. practices. So I just wanted to point out it's not necessarily this kind of mobilization of, of of spirituality and religion as a resource for healing. It's the truth that many people utilize it. And I think that's why, uh, particularly when I was a Claremont professor for a decade, now I'm in at Augsburg. But one thing that was really important for me was to really have students do the textual exploration, but also sometimes talk about, for instance, I am um, someone who writes, uh, recites Quran and was trained. And I found that when I would recite it in a particular, there's a particular style in which we're trained and it's a very, the Quran, like other texts, is not meant to just be read, but is meant to be read aloud. And it's a beautiful, poetic um in many ways, it has a quality of, of rhythm to it. And so if you ask a Muslim, they'll say, well, who's your favorite Qari? Who is the person that you go to yeah. listen to? And so I would do that. And it was fascinating to me that when I would perform, meaning Quran with, um, at one time I was working formerly incarcerated people, that it, they would come up to me and say, there's something so healing about that text. They had no idea mm. what it meant. And I picked uh -huh. my favorite one of my favorite surahs or passages, which is about compassion of God. And it's known for being particularly rhythmic in its uh. phonetic setting. And it was really powerful to hear that, that these tools that exist um, within our own traditions are really, um, there's, there's some reason that they've persisted, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's some yeah. reason that this has persisted for 1,400 right. years. There's some reason yeah. that, you know, a, an Ifa Yoruba kind of uh, healing tradition. I mean, people have adhered to these, not just because they're dogmatic, but because there's something really in them that captures the soul and gives solace. I think to give an example, one of the things that's been so powerful for me in Minneapolis and St. Paul and really the whole state of Minnesota is this articulation of Christian hospitality based in what I would call an immigrant Lutheran ethos, <laughs> because mm. many of the Christian communities who identify as Lutheran, particularly tied to the institution where I teach now, Augsburg, also have an immigrant experience that is not that far away. Uh, I was really struck by the kind of cultural, <laughs> you know, when I came to when I came to Minnesota, it was this kind of pride in like our desserts and our food and how coffee is made um, between Norwegians and other other um, other folks that had immigrated or migrated to that part of the country. And it was still very present, which I can't say is the case for people of all backgrounds. And what really struck me was this, um, I don't know if you know, but Minnesota has the highest per capita um, refugee population in the country. So what wow, is this I did story? Not know that. Yeah, what is this story? And of many communities, Hmong community, um, Somali community, and now we have um, Bosnians, Syrians, and others. And it really struck me, you know, what is it about this story that has not made it out around the heartland? You know? We're not talking about a coastal community. 
The Mississippi River is right next to our campus. It is a mile wide, but it's not a coast. Apparently there's one part of it that's really big that's called a lake. So, um, but it's, there's something really um, about this historical context. And it really struck me that um, part of it was this, this deeply held belief around service within the Lutheran iteration of Christian belief as well as the, the social economic uh, ethos, as I mentioned, around who are immigrants and why are they immigrating? And often they were fleeing um, other types of persecution. And so this is not a story that's unrecognized mm. as newer refugees and immigrants are coming. This is not a story that's, you know, it's cognizable to many. And of course there are problems and there is really present and particular racism in this region. Last week we had a, uh, we're, one thing that's fascinating about Augsburg is we're now, we have more Muslims than Lutherans. So we're probably at the point of uh, where the latest number is about 12% Muslim, a majority institution of people of color. Um, and, it really struck me, the Muslim students, we help them organize um, as we're doing, we'll be working with Jewish and other students on campus. Muslim students wanted to organize a, um, a panel on Ramadan since Ramadan is coming up and they wanted to organize a panel to educate faculty and staff on practices in Ramadan. For those who don't know, um, Muslims have a lunar calendar that is not adjusted like other lunar calendars do. So we, our calendar shifts, it's not seasonal. It goes back 10 to some number of days every year. So it means that Ramadan has not been observed during the school year for about 15 years. Mm. It was in the summer and now it's suddenly it's kind of finding its way into the school year. So if people are wondering suddenly, why are Muslim students saying, hey, I'm fasting? It's because this calendar shifts and then next year it'll shift and at some point we'll find its way probably back into winter break over um, a period of time. So our students were really... Um, you know, they were they were talking about their need or concern for accommodations, and um, it was fascinating to me that the two Muslim students on stage also said, you know, one of the reasons we chose this institution is because of its religious heritage, its religious um, ethos, its religious ecosystem, and that this institution values our faith and our tradition and understands that we don't have to explain, um, we don't have to explain everything. We have to explain a lot, but we don't have to explain anything. And that they chose this, they chose Augsburg. So to me, that's a really interesting story. And it reminds me um, of Glenn Stassen, who is my, one of my mentors, he's passed away. And he really was an incredible Christian voice for peacemaking and just peacemaking. And he would say in his scholarship, we need to be peacemakers because of Jesus. And so let's thicken. He would always tell his students, thicken the example of Jesus. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. Don't be afraid to talk about scripture. Go deeper, go deeper, find ways. And it really led me in my own work to think about thicken the example of Prophet Muhammad in particular, because he's such a such an important spiritual figure for Muslims. And so 
In my own scholarship, I've been thinking a lot about and have written about and, and, and lecture very often in faith communities and including my own about the example of Prophet Muhammad and what we extrapolate around peacemaking. Maybe you can say a little bit by way of introduction, what happens in Ramadan there? I think more and more Americans, I think, are beginning to understand that Ramadan is a time and maybe there's some fasting, maybe there's some praying going on. But what is the what's the spiritual opportunities as you see them for Muslim communities um, during the month of Ramadan and and how might um, the broader uh, interfaith and American community um, learn uh, from that time and also be supportive? Absolutely. I think those are really good questions. And I think a lot of times when we talk about Ramadan, we talk about the things people can't do. And I think it's helpful to also think about the affirmative duties or practices that also happen in Ramadan. So at the very basic level, um, before um, the sun rises, uh, there is the pre-dawn meal, it's called suhoor. And Muslims, depending on their cultural background, my parents would have a kind of a, a full kind of meal. Other people um, will have a cup of coffee. <laughs> it just depends. Different cultures. Um, there's a new practice that has kind of emerged in the U.S. among some of uh, my kids and I will do like sahur at um, IHOP. So apparently there's some IHOPs I heard, I don't know in which part of the country that understood, oh, Muslims love, for some reason in this month, they come in and eat at whatever the sunrise, before sunrise time is at 3 a.m. So we'll eat together um, at uh, before the sunrise. And then there's no eating or drinking of any kind, including water. That's, we all want to make a t-shirt that says even water. And then at sunset, then we break our fast for that day. And then we are able to eat and drink. Um, so in a lot of Muslim majority countries, you'll see the kind of culture of this month um, shifts to the evening. So people are kind of eating and um, engaging and socializing a lot in the evening. So that's at a very basic level of ritual but embedded in that is also what Prophet Muhammad tells us, which is this is also a time that we're supposed to fast from anger, fast from um, mocking people, fast from any kind of negative social behavior. It's also a month that emphasizes forgiveness. Many of us um, in the beginning of Ramadan, before Ramadan comes, will seek out someone that we've harmed and ask for forgiveness and open up that door because we don't want, it's, it's a, I'll often tell people it's a behavioral modification month. We want to walk into this month, the doors open with a, an ability to regenerate our spiritual batteries. So even though we're not eating, the part of not eating isn't as much um, just deprivation, but it's also to focus the energy on a spiritual component in life. There are many other opportunities for prayer in Ramadan, uh, particularly in the last 10 days. Every evening there is a uh, prayer that is not obligatory, but many uh, will, We there are five obligatory prayers for those who observe them. Um, and then there is another communal prayer very often where people will gather in the mosque, Tarawih prayer in the evening, 
Um, and it will go late into the night, often depending on um, how you practice it and where you practice it. And then, so imagining that you're, in addition to not eating, you're often staying up later and doing these communal prayers. And then most mosques will uh, cover one thirtieth of the Quran since it's 30 uh, days and then uh, do some form of teaching. So in the mosque, in different mosques, I will do that teaching in the evenings. So you're often staying up late and praying and then waking up early in the morning before prayer time to eat. So it is a time where we sleep less as well. And um, I think the most beautiful thing about it really is, I would say, the emphasis on um, building, building our social fabric with one another, gathering and thinking about, well, what is the power of self-regulation and self-control? So self-control over food, but also our capacity to um, to not express anger. So I remember mm. I used to write about this month with my kids and they're like, mommy, when they're little, now they're 14 and 16, they would say, mommy, you're not allowed to yell at me in Ramadan. And I remember noting that in Ramadan, the volume of our house would go down with mm. a four a six-year-old um surprisingly <laughs> we would all yeah. kind of dial it back um and I also just want to you know let people make it clear to folks too there are many exceptions if you're pregnant or nursing then you don't have to fast people who are taking medications for um right. you know to protect their life don't have to fast you'll notice very elderly people may not fast because it's debilitating so the fast is not meant to be something right. that is done by people who have barriers to it and we don't look down on someone if they can like if if someone has needs has an exception it's that's called a, a mercy from god like you just you you understand that right and the final emphasis is for instance if you can't fast or um throughout the month is really frankly redistribution of wealth this is a month where if you for instance can't fast and you feed someone um there are special charities so um you'll see in ramadan there's a lot of openness for and push really to give um and it also comes from that place of one of the one of the reasons to have an empty stomach is to understand what it means to have an empty stomach for those who mm. don't have that as a regular mm -hmm. feature in their life. Yeah. I, I think that that's so beautiful. And it's just talking about like the, I, I can't remember what the exact term you said. It was like the kind of the, 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 the richness and the offering of faith um, in some ways, like what you, you had a better term for it, but it was to, these are ways of, really focusing on what matter like it seems like it's a way of like kind of and i it, it, in their own way the tradition of yom kippur or lent you know you kind of like you you take a time and say like what not not only what am i fasting from but what do i fast to and what do i really want to be focused on what do what really matters um in our in our world and all the things you mentioned you know that, that it's really it's a beautiful time and it's uh you know one of the one of the great joys um is is you know you, you feel like you're cheating a little bit but being invited to an iftar dinner uh where uh the 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 breaking of the fast happens at night and and even if you fasted that day you kind of feel like this I'm still kind of cheating because I'm kind of going into this beautiful community that is in the middle of such a a process but it is a it's a a great opportunity and to all our listeners if you're if if you happen to um 
you know, if you happen to have a way to be invited to an iftar, it's a very beautiful way to kind of experience some of the blessing uh, that Dr. Saeed has been talking about. Um, it's not cheating. It's not cheating. Something I wanted to point out is since I study interfaith relations, Ramadan, during Ramadan, our charitable activity, but also our interfaith activity often quadruples. So you'll see a lot of mosques have open houses. And I, this is, it is, while it is a deeply spiritual practice for Muslims, it's also one in which we're, we spend a lot of time in community. So there's an interior element of self-regulation, developing that discipline, but there's also very much a social, breaking of the fast is very much a mm -hmm. social gathering, the evening prayer. But it is, a, it is a time when we want to be open to other communities. So you'll see that this has now, for Muslims, this is often our interfaith season. Yeah, it's a, it's a great... Friends. It is it is meant for doors to be open. And if you have Muslim neighbors, if you have Muslim friends marking the beginning of Ramadan, um, it you can take over food, you can uh, bring some offering. Um, and then Ramadan culminates um, uh, with Eid al-Fitr, which is one of the two great Eids or celebrations that Muslims have. And so offering, you know, we actually... <laughs> We, if you say happy Ramadan or Ramadan Mubarak, which is what we say, we're happy to receive that greeting. We're happy to receive um, any offering that you may have, whether it's on Eid or Eid, uh, Eid Mubarak is another way that we we say or happy Eid at the end of this month. I just wanted to kind of open the door to folks to understand that it is, it is not meant to be an isolating uh, gathering. And so it is very much become our interfaith season. <laughs> so yeah. I will probably speak and I will, I've, churches have iftars. It's, it's different than a Seder dinner, which understandably the dinner itself or the breaking of the fast doesn't have the same ritual prescriptions as a Seder. So I think a church hosting a Seder would be a different issue. Um, right, 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 right. Theologically, yeah, but an iftar, yeah. it, the breaking of the fast and the gathering. So I just wanted to point that out that yeah, please. That's great. Well, not. I like the, I like that you say it's not cheating. It, I, 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 I only mean like, you know, you see, it's really, it is a beautiful, if you please, please uh, look, special. yeah, it's very special. Up next more with Najiba Saeed. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of state of belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you understand Muslim life in America right now and some of the challenges to our pluralistic society and, and some of where you think we need to be going as a nation as far as making sure that Muslims around the country feel fully welcome and able to be yourselves and thrive. I think that's a really great question. I think part of it is complexified or problematized by the fact that Muslims are so diverse and we have many generations. Um, I've been here since I was three, so that means I've been here for more than 40 years. There are other folks that are recently immigrated. Um, then there are communities that 
um, have been here before the founding of this nation um, right. in one capacity or another or descendants. So I think that's really important when we talk about this umbrella of Muslims. Um, you know, one thing that really concerns me is often people say the consciousness of Muslims arrived after 9-11 um, and or the consciousness around equity. And in, there have been many communities that experienced particularly the Black Muslim community that ex has been in existence um, for hundreds of years and on this land. And I think that's been uh, important to emphasize because I think the timeline of when a particular community was activated around their um, concern for equity and inclusion is different depending on when you come to the country and how you came to this country, what were the circumstances of it and that timeline. One of the things I also like to ask is not just what are Muslims experiencing, but what are Muslims contributing, you know, that totally. uh, exactly. Cause I think a lot of times the emphasis on, on, um, you know, what have we experienced discrimination is really important. And it's also important to think about and unearth, local examples, you know, thinking about like one of the, the mother, a mother mosque in Iowa being one of the oldest mosques in the country. Totally. Um, yes. Yes. Hundreds. So those uh, are, I mean, and I think, 1800s. Yeah. yeah. Sapelo Square does a beautiful job. If you haven't looked at it on engaging current Muslim history, black Muslim history, but also engaging historical examples. And so the reason I say that is because I think part of the conversation is I would say three steps. <laughs> the biggest Islamophobic trope that I have a problem with, surprisingly, is the fact that we do all agree or that we're all <laughs> similar. I remember one, one imam I was talking to, he's like, you know, I wish we were that organized. I can't even get people to stand in line in a straight line in my mosque. Uh, so I think coming into the question around who is a Muslim and what is a Muslim and who are Muslims, starting with the place of understanding that it's an incredibly ethnically, racially, linguistically diverse community. And in fact, it's communities. Um, so I think that would be kind of having that open mindset and understanding that if you've met one Muslim or you know one Muslim community in your neighborhood, they may be you know, vastly different from another, even in the same city. Um, and I think another piece to understand is we not only are we racially and religiously diverse, but we're also tend to be from minoritized communities empirically as well. So my students, for instance, at Augsburg, we have one, I think the largest Somali Muslim population of a private college in terms of percentage. So one of the things we've been talking a lot about with folks who have been engaging <laughs> on Muslims in Minnesota or trying to understand our college campuses is that you know, my students come to campus with often um, the reality of coming from somewhat of a refugee status and intersectionality with being both Muslim and Black. And so the anti-Blackness discussion may leave them out or the Islamophobia discussion doesn't engage the reality of anti-Blackness. And so I've really been I've been really struck by that when we talk about um, when we talk about Muslims or Islam, is there the the capacity to hold a conversation that brings, as you said, the fullness of who that particular Muslim or that Muslim community is, 
And frankly, that's not always done very well. And it's often not done well in interfaith spaces as well. Um, you know, if you're asking, I had, uh, I was talking to some of my students and they were saying, you know, if I come into an interfaith space and I'm asked to speak as a Muslim, I have to address police brutality or I have to, you know, I have to address what it means to deal with pretty hyper surveillance um, of my community because that's part of my experience, but I may not have room at the table because people are saying, well, you were just here to talk about Islam. <laughs> so I just want to point that out. So if you know, if I come to the table, I'm an immigrant, I'm South Asian, I'm Kashmir, like there are things that will come out from that experience that may not be read as Muslim, but are definitely a part of my heritage. So mm. whomever that person is, and I, I just wanted to point out the flattening and the erasure of those other parts of us for Muslim communities can lead to relationships that don't last or dialogues that may not be really helpful. And over time, silence, um, silence experiences and remove the door for us to explore that shared understanding that I was talking about. In some ways, every relationship is localized. Every uh, experience of a religious community has is, has context. The, the thing you said about if as if we were that organized, I think I've heard the Jewish community say that too. Like all Jews, like, you know, two Jews, three opinions at least. So, you know, I mean, it, as if you could say one thing about and, – and I think that that's really just really important that – the multitudinous nature of all of our communities and, and the fact that all Muslims are not going to agree, just as all Christians are not going to agree. I mean, this is not just one thing. So I think I do think it's contextualized. I, the trick for me is the people who are feel invested in a kind of white Protestant Christian America are not interested in that complexity at all. <laughs> and so, you know, there is like, I do think kind of a flattening. And I think that in making sure that there is like an understanding of the robustness, the broad colors and, and uh, traditions that come with the Muslim community, as well as other communities um, that we that we have across the country. I think you're right. And particularly, I think, for me, what's been really powerful is stories, for instance, of as I mentioned, refugee or migrant communities that have come into parts of the country that may have been more monocultural. And it's been fascinating to me to see these restaurants and businesses open up in parts of the country that may not have had that experience before. And the reason I point that out is that some of the amazing interfaith that work that's happening is not really on the coast at all the time. And one of the I think the powerful pieces of uh, some of the heartland and the work that's happening in even smaller towns, like in Omaha, Syrian refugees doing incredible work. Some of these stories also reflect the, the culture of smaller towns in rural America, which are really beautiful. There are parts of our country where people are more interdependent, <laughs> where you actually do know your neighbors, where you actually do know everyone in school. And so I always ask, like, what are the other cultural norms that exist around surrounding us that play a role? Because one of the things I found, I was remember I spoke at in Iowa a number of years ago, and I was just struck by the mosque, the synagogue and the church and the work that they were doing where people knew each other's names. They knew each other's children's names and they were just so engaged with one another. 
And it hit me that I call this casserole hospitality. It struck me that it was about that small town. Once you're able to come overcome the fears and develop some sort of shared understanding of the world um, with your unique practice, um, there is in many ways very deep, deep uh, inner faith or inner religious work that can happen. So I just wanted mm. to point that out. As well. Yeah, no, I actually, it's, it's so on time because I just got back from Fresno, California, where I was just so like moved by in one room, just like how they knew one another. They really knew one another and they had called upon one another because they felt they, they really needed one another. And there was genuine affection you know, I was out there to give lectures and I was learning the whole time because they just were really, really kind of uh, preaching to me with their with their lives. So um, I, I wonder how you understand right now the principle of religious freedom, which gets talked about a lot. And I think we assume an understanding of it. But right now, the value of religious freedom is is wielded in many different ways. I'm curious how you understand that principle. Yeah, I mean, you know, I also have a legal background, so um, there is there is that that understanding of it. Um, you know what? I think I, I've been having really fascinating conversations around um, the idea of of what human rights also look like in our moment and in our time. And so when we think about religious freedom, I think that is one aspect of a conversation that's important to have. And I think as religious actors, um, if those are the folks that are at the table, I think drawing there, there's a sense of like my ability and capacity to practice as one of, as the question. And then to me, a corollary question is what is my, um, what is my obligation for care of others? Because those to me are questions that come together. And this is not even just in religious freedom, but this is this comes to any form of freedom that we have in this country is, what is my capacity for expression? And then what is my moral duty to care for others? Because if they're not asked together, um, then I think if we emphasize one over the other, um, we can end up in a scenario where we may overlook people's unique practices or need for accommodations. But if the question is only on accommodations without understanding how do we create a social coherence, or what is the larger project that we're talking about? What is the larger context? That is uh, it. I mean, the uh, social coherence, also known as democracy. I mean, under being in community with one another, I think that that's, it's, you've, you've put it so beautifully that this is the the question of religious freedom is in conversation with the question of human rights and and human dignity of others. It's a really it's part of a you know and that's where you know I, I'm 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 my guess is, is that we're going to see um, religious freedom at, uh, through the Supreme Court given a lot of power uh, to ignore uh, human rights of others, especially around accommodation. So not accommodation in the sense of you can practice as you like, but you can refuse uh, service to others. That's what I'm really worried about is how, how this will affect people in the LGBTQ community, other people who are who may feel like they're on the 
the receiving end of a of a religious freedom that that leaves them out. This is a tension. This is the kind of tension that exists in multiple settings. I'll give you an, another example: the issue of hate crimes. Um, we have so. To me, I don't have a resolution for it, and I don't have a real, I don't have a universal position on it. I do think that these are conversations that need to happen. So um, I was working on issues of hate crimes over the years, and for many people, they felt invisible when religion was a part of the targeting of folks. And so there was a push for hate crimes laws, enhancement, you know, and there are certain communities who are more physically visible or live in large concentrations and are easily targeted um, because there are religious communities who physically can in some ways pass in, in, in the larger setting. They may not be easily identifiable. Um, and so there's this kind of discourse on um, a need and, and feeling that they have been ignored, uh, different religious communities or individuals feeling they have been ignored in the hate crimes discourse. Um, and legislation or policy efforts. And then you come up, you know, then you have to deal with this reality of communities that are saying lessen the the presence of policing or lessen enforcement. And so I'm just sharing with you, these are, I think these are tensions that are going to exist with recognizing religious communities as having particularized needs and practices in an ecosystem of a larger social, not just social order, but uh, policy um, and, uh, as you identified, democratic venue. So I think these are really fascinating questions and conversations that we need to engage with intellectually, but also from our own religious traditions and um, understand. I think one thing that's been really helpful for me is to understand the historical experience of different communities that come to the table. So for instance, if I'm working with a community that has experienced hate crimes and feels that they need to legislate more or they need more security, that I need to be able to have that conversation with another community that has a different opinion on, doesn't have the religious element or identity, but is really concerned about issues of, of increasing budgets or increasing um, enforcement um, activities. So mm. how do we have that conversation with each other instead of right. just writing each other off? It's a kind of a nuance in which we all have to ask what is a larger project we're engaged in? And mm. uh, I think that, that that really means what is our vision for this country? and not just what is the vision for my community. Because if we don't ask the larger question, then the protection of one's community to the ultimate detriment of a collective society, we've seen that happen in other parts of the world as well. Um, and I just, I just wanna caution us to understand where that protectionism might come from for communities. Mm. and listen and have a conversation um, that doesn't just automatically push people aside without understanding where they, why they have come to where they have and what do we need to be able to do to move forward together. For I think particularly communities that um, are again and again targeted in, you know, statistically are targeted 
it's really, you know, it's understandable um, that there is fear. And so I think getting to where the fear comes from and what are the steps that would work um, and what are the kinds of support that community could get from other groups, civil society and other communities that could address those issues around safety. Um, I think that's part of the conversation isn't to just say, well, what is it that you uh, need, you know, what is it that you're going to do, but what can we do? And I think Mm -hmm. in all of these conversations that larger we has been so disrupted and interrupted um, and that when people are really targets of violence, when people are really dealing with realities that get to their very, um, very deep forms of spiritual practice. You know, Marianne Moyart um, is a scholar of inner interfaith engagement, and she talks about this idea of us having fragile identities. These are not just dialogues where we get together and have conversation, but particularly with our spiritual and religious communities, it comes to the point of a deep sense of, of our, our worldview and our essence. And so that fragility is there. And I'm saying, just let's pay attention to that Mm. uh, fragility and to understand that um, it takes a lot to come to this table and that not every community is, is ready for this kind of civic engagement. They may not have the infrastructure or power, right? If you know, when you have a five, 501c4 that you have already organized for generations for your cause, or if you live in fear for your life um, for multiple reasons. As I mentioned, if you're more visible, you're identifiable from a community. Those are all factors that, you know, play into this reality. Um, And so I, 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 you know, I just caution us to be kind of take a breath, slow down, and um, think about uh, think about this idea of what and how are people coming to the table with some level of fragility, and mm-hmm. um, and I think that has been very helpful for me, because I do think advocacy and activism are certainly important and a part of this conversation. And part of it, part of the advocacy is also asking people and meeting people where they are and um, getting to the we that is as inclusive as possible. Um, But there are certainly challenges. And I think that for me, uh, particularly, um, it's, it's the moment of, the moment for me that has been really a big question is when will people stand with me when they gain nothing? When will I stand with others when I gain nothing? And maybe I'll even lose something or a lot. And I've had to have, I've had to, you know, I've had to make some of those decisions. And I know folks that have stood with me personally, um, where they didn't gain anything, you know, where there wasn't, sometimes there is a common goal, you know, I teach negotiation and mediation, sometimes there's a common benefit, but sometimes it is a moral decision and choice. And uh, there are moments in history when we have to do that as well. Mm. I want to ask you, uh, what gives you hope? Like, what gives you hope right now? Honestly, Gen Z gives me a lot of hope. My 14-year-old daughter was like, you know, we figured this all out. Um, she says something like, we figured this all out. When are, when are you guys? I was like, you're right. Um, and kind of to also talk about her, you know, I asked her, um, where do you want to go to college? And she said, 
England. And I said, oh, that's really fascinating. What, 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 what made England come to mind? And she said, well, mommy, you know, they don't have guns. This was a year ago. And it struck me that this child who has led a pretty protected life in terms of just her reality, that for her at her age, gun violence is in schools is a reality. So it's going to, in her mind, influence where she wants to go to college. And that really hit me, that really hit home for me. Um, just as, as, so Gen Z, to me, what was, um, what is, what gives me hope is that I, I do think that um, while a lot of us are nervous about institutions that seem to be dealing with issues of stability, continuity, that there are shakeups in history um, that open the doors for renewal and capacity for creating models that didn't exist before. So, so I know that, you know, maybe, maybe because I do conflict resolution that I know some of the most beautiful things come out of moments in history where people did question, where people did interrogate, where people did think about, you know, um, we talk about the power of the status quo where the status quo was considered. And, um, you know, we do things the way we do them because we've always done them that way. That's really how we operate as human beings. And so what gives me hope is, you know, reimagining, um, reimagining the ways in which institutions and um, particularly structures that govern can build build opportunities for compassion. And um, we have more people at the table now than have ever been able to be at the table. Many more people need to be at the table and it's going to take time and not everyone's here yet. <laughs> and some people still aren't at the table, but there's a lot of people that have been really good at building their own tables and are now at, you know, we're, we're, we're building that table together. So that gives me a lot of hope because I do think that, um, I do think that in the end, um, you know, Prophet Muhammad's uh, mission on earth was to be to be a source of compassion to all beings. And I think that's part of prophetic leadership is, is understanding there'll never be perfection. Um, not everyone will get it. It won't always be happy. I mean, think about Prophet Isa or Jesus in, you know, um, in our tradition, he, we, we consider him a prophet Think about Moses. You know the story that I loved? There are two stories, and we can probably end with this. Two stories. One of them is the story of Noah, who's also in the Quran, Prophet Noah. And I just think about this man, and the Quran tells us he had didn't have money, he didn't have he didn't have political or connections. He's going around, it's dry, and he's knocking on everyone's door, telling them, hey guys, build a boat, you know. Imagine the tenacity that must have taken. <laughs> oh my god. To like go door to door and say, guess what? There's this flood coming. I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, <laughs> listen to me. And it wasn't, to me, it wasn't really about in the end. Um, it, it's about that process. And that is what mm. I think we sometimes miss in mm. this kinds of prophetic leadership. It's that process of this man going door to door. Gen Z is, Gen Z is building a boat. Gen Z is <laughs> building. We, we, building a boat together I think it was so yeah this is just generally to me just this idea of prophetic leadership like it's not meant to be easy and if you know mm -hmm. like it's okay if it's not easy every day you know I was saying about how Dr. King was one of the most hated figures in our society at his death right. Right. um 
And the other story that's really beautiful for me, and I shared this this past weekend, was Sulaiman, or in our tradition, Sulaiman is Solomon the prophet. He had this gift of listening to animals. He could understand them. And I often think, I was like, oh, that's not a gift I'm sure I would want, because imagine all the bad feedback you'd be getting from what we're doing to the earth right now. And there's this beautiful story in the Quran of um, there's an ant and she hears the army of Sulaiman coming, Solomon coming, and she cries out to her people and to her uh, her people ants, I guess, to the other ants. And Solomon, when he hears her, he changes the direction of his army to avoid harming these ants. So first of all, there's there's a beautiful lesson of no harm. But what was interesting is when I was thinking about that story when I was younger was that it was the voice of one person will change the course of an army. That was like how I read it. But now at this stage in life, having done the work that I've done, I think about actually it's Solomon's capacity to listen to this ant and take action. So really the transformational power of listening and, the, and especially ability. listening to a listening to a voice that you could exactly. easily disregard. Exactly. You, know, you had the and, and also the that you had the power to disregard exactly. and yet recognize that that's the power. Exactly. That's the voice I especially need to listen to. Exactly. That's, wow. Who is the I love boy? that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Marcy yeah. Methodist uh, Christian scholar, African uh, scholar. And she really talks about the fact that no one is voiceless. It's, are we listening? Right. So right. Everyone has a voice. And, you know, like I was thinking about, there's this beautiful story of um, that I heard about Muhammad Ali in an airport. And he got down to the level of a young six-year-old child to listen to their story. Because he's this big, you know, I don't know how tall he was, yeah. but he was this yeah, powerful yeah. man. Are we like building the systems that listen? Are we building, Mm. are we building our faith communities even in ways that listen? Because a lot of times this kind of work doesn't need to even happen outside of our own homes and our own communities. We don't have to go very far to hear the voice of that aunt, the person in the back of the room, the person who couldn't make it to the mosque that day because they didn't Mm. have transportation. Mm. So Mm. You know, what does hospitality look like when it means that you're listening to um, and making the effort? Um, so combining hospitality with going out of one's way, our normal way, our everyday way, so that your norm becomes a much more inclusive norm. Right. Well, and I'm thinking about the the. It was of no benefit to Suleiman's army to to go the other way. But they decided, you know, when you talk about like, what will you do that doesn't even benefit yourself? Uh, So Najib Asid is the inaugural El Hebre Endowed Chair and Executive Director of Interfaith at Augsburg University in Minneapolis. She has been a professor, expert practitioner, and public speaker for the last two decades in the field of conflict resolution, interface studies, mediation, education, deliberative democracy, social, gender, and racial equity. Dr. Najiva Seed, thank you so much for joining me on State of Belief Radio. I really appreciated talking to you. Thank you. This was really fun. I want to take a minute to talk about my recent trip to Fresno, California, where I gave a series of lectures over the last weekend. And 
I was so moved by the people I met out there. It's an incredible community. It's a farming community. And in the middle of the valley, Central Valley in California. And some of the people I met, I met uh, an Indian man who has been teaching conflict resolution and peace studies at Fresno State named Dr. Kapoor. He's been there for over 40 years teaching. I met a deacon from the Catholic Church who came from the Bronx. I met an indigenous Latina woman and her partner, Noah, who have a child. I met an atheist ethics professor. I met a Jewish rabbi who was holding a Purim celebration. I met a Catholic priest. I met an African-American clergywoman. I met a wonderful activist and his wife who are Muslim and care for the broader community. It was this incredible community of people in this town that also at the same time that there's all this diversity and people from around the world have immigrated to this community to find a safe haven from wherever they were fleeing from, it's existing side by side with this burgeoning white Christian nationalism. I got to see this incredible Buddhist temple that had just been opened. It was so beautiful. And we were invited to go do a meditation there. And unfortunately, the people across the road, once it had been built, they put up a fence so they didn't have to see it. This beautiful architecture, but it made them afraid. You know, I I was talking to the UU minister there who was just welcoming and, and inviting where I preached on Sunday. And I bring this up because it just reminded me that we have these two realities existing often side by side in communities where where there's one side of the community is is so open and invested in one another. I mean, these people really showed up for one another. And on the other side, there were people who were so fearful and trying to keep people out and trying to maintain barriers and trying to build up walls. And my biggest hope is that, honestly, and this is what I preached at the Unitarian Church, I was just like, how can we find a way to unfurl our, our, our closed fist and extend a hand, even to those people who might fear us, who might, who might hate us even, and say, we, we want you to be a part of our, this broader movement of people from all different backgrounds, all different religions, no faith, all faiths, people from every different sexuality and gender, coming together to say, let's live together in a beautiful community, in the beloved community, together with one another, you know, standing with one another, up for one another. This is an opportunity for us to do that. And so I just want to say thank you to everyone in Fresno for what a, an incredible weekend. And also an invitation to those people who think that they have to be fearful of, of what this multicultural, multi-gender, multi-sexuality, all the, all multi-faith, it doesn't have to be oppositional. Come join us. We want you. 
So that's my, my message for today is that we're trying to build a country which really represents everybody and where everybody is treated with equal dignity. Everybody has equal rights under the law and there's space for everybody to come join us. So please consider yourself invited from no matter what position you are. Join us, Interfaith Alliance and every uh, community. Just show up for one another. Be present for one another in this moment. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.